0: We will be uh, reading from our sermon text this evening, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, a short passage but packed full of lots of importance. Paul writes For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Will you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, we ask that You would speak to us tonight that these incredibly important words would sink deep into our hearts by the power of Your Holy Spirit we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I suppose it's probably not much of a surprise to you that the question banging around in my head the last few weeks is what in the world am I going to preach about tonight? Over and over and over again, it's been ringing in my ears, what should I be talking to you about at this first launch service of Epiphany Lutheran Church, I mean, this is a big deal. You know, you don't want to mess this one up. You don't want to waste your words here. And so you want to think about exactly what it is that your hearers need to hear on this evening. And there's so many directions I could have gone. I mean, I could have talked about our excitement to minister to Stuyvesant Town and Alphabet City. There's 125,000 people in one square mile, the vast majority of whom do not attend a church We can reach them. That gets me excited. But I'm not going to talk about that tonight. I could spend a lot of time talking about Epiphany's hopes to impact not just New York City, but the world. I mean, remember, what happens here doesn't stay here, but it spreads really to the rest of the country and to the rest of the globe. And so that would be something really exciting to talk about, but I'm not going to talk about that either. I could talk about our hopes and our plans to grow dramatically over the next year. We do have them. We do have plans and a strategy. We have a way forward. And I could give you a good vision sermon tonight. That's probably what a good number of people would opt to do tonight, give you a vision sermon. Nope, not getting it. And of course, I could tell you our story. I could give you a history lesson over the, about the last uh, year and a half from starting off as a family and a few friends to being the community that we have now. And that would be really great to talk to you about, but no, we're not going to do that either. So what is it I believe we need to talk about tonight? Well, I believe we need to talk about first things first. And that means we have to talk about the Gospel. We have to spend time talking about it because it is, according to our text, the power of God for salvation. We need to talk about salvation before we go anywhere else. Now, you might hear that, some of you sitting here tonight, and think, well, you know, kind of that idea of salvation is a little antiquated, uh, it's a little past due. Do we really need to talk about that anymore? But I, I would submit to you that there has never been a time where the topic of salvation is actually more hot. People are looking to be saved all the time from something. People are trying to find new ways and inventive ways to save ourselves all the time. If you read the latest tech magazines, you'll hear a lot about the singularity. All these uh, tech guys working to try and create technology that will morph with humanity that will give us the power to maybe, just maybe, live forever, if not for much longer. We, We know that we need saving, and so we might think of it in terms on the local level or on the uh, individual level is, you know, we're going to save ourselves at least to some extent by dieting better. We're going to save ourselves by saving money better or building up a big bank account. Or we're going to save ourselves uh, more on a macro level by getting the right politicians in office and et cetera, et cetera. But the point is, if you look hard enough, you will be able to find something that you think can save you. David Brooks in the New York Times the other day on Friday wrote a great column called The Persistence of Guilt dealing with this issue. And essentially his case in that column was to say that uh, modern society is still just as guilty as ever, but with the passing of religion in society, people don't know what to do with the guilt. And yet, we can't just stick with it. We can't just live with it. We need to put it somewhere. And so he makes the case that in our modern society, the way we deal with guilt is the only way we can sort of feel absolved from guilt is if we make ourselves the victim. If we make ourselves the victim enough, then maybe, maybe we're held guiltless, not responsible. Now my point in telling you that is to tell you again, the talk of salvation is everywhere. So let me set the record straight tonight what I feel like we need to talk about is what Christianity says we need salvation from, what Christianity tells us God did to provide that salvation, and then finally, uh, what God does to deliver that salvation. So first of all, what do we need salvation from? Now, uh, from our text, that little short passage from Romans that I read, you might not have picked it up at first, but it's there. It's found in one little word. The word is righteousness righteousness now that's not a word we use today in our vernacular very much but but it's an important word the word righteous is is kind of just another way of saying good or holy to be a just person actually in the bible the way righteous might be used is to be thought of as perfect perfectly good And what the Bible goes on to tell us, especially in the passages that follow this one in the book of Romans, is that humanity's biggest problem is a lack of said righteousness. We desperately need righteousness, and yet Paul says in Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Ah, but this isn't the way we naturally think, is it? Most of us naturally think that even if we're not perfect, we're not that bad. Indeed, our problem is actually a false sense of self-righteousness. In a recent article for Psychology Today entitled, Why Bad Guys Think They're Good Guys, Why Bad Guys Think They're Good Guys, the author makes the case that even the most seemingly evil people throughout history have basically thought, I'm doing some good stuff here. Uh, Psychologist Albert Bandura theorized that people who do evil have justified the morality of their actions to themselves in some way. They found a way to justify it by convincing themselves that their behavior is moral or for the greater good, and so they can separate and disengage themselves from immoral behavior and its consequences. Now, Now, he says people do four things to achieve this. Tell me if any of this might sound familiar. Number one, they redefine the behavior. So, for example, while most people believe that hatred and killing are generally wrong, if the enemy is seen to be evil enough, hatred and killing can be justified. Number two, in order to justify bad behavior or justify ourselves, we disregard or distort the consequences of our behavior. I have a five-year-old son who is master level at this. Master. Anytime he breaks something in the home, just happened today, anytime he hurts one of his brothers, the first thing he'll tell me, he'll assure me of this, no joke, he'll say, daddy, it's not broken that bad. Or if he hurts his brother and the brother is crying, he says, he's not really hurt. He's not really hurt that bad. You know, you disregard or distort the consequences of the behavior. Uh, Number three, you dehumanize or blame the victims. Well, if that guy hadn't have cut me off on the freeway, then I wouldn't have flipped him off and driven him off into a ditch. But you know, he was driving crazy, so I had to take him out. <laughs> number four, you displace or defuse responsibility. Most famous example of this is probably the Nuremberg trials. Some of you might be familiar with what happened. A number of the soldiers that were on trial said that they were not held, they couldn't be held guilty. Why? They were just following orders. These very soldiers that had ushered people into the gas chambers that had seen sometimes tens or hundreds of people die because of their actions, and their minds could justify it because they were just merely following orders. Now here's the thing. This list of, uh, of all this list here is true to all of us to some degree. We've all done it. We've all done these things. Sure, we may not have committed atrocities or brought great harm to the people around us, but we have done these things. In big and small ways, we rationalize away our faults and we emphasize what we think makes us look good. And social science and psychology and the Scriptures would tell you, it's delusion. Our big problem is that we are missing righteousness. And we, uh, we allow ourselves to delude ourselves into thinking it's okay. Mike Wallace, a number of years ago on 60 Minutes, interviewed a man who had survived the concentration camps named Yahiel Danur. Eighteen years after his experience in World War II. He was at those very Nuremberg trials and he was going to testify against Adolf Eichmann. Adolf the Adolf Eichmann that so many of them had heard about. The evil one personified. And yet when Dinur walked into the courtroom, something really interesting happened. He saw Eichmann and he began to sob and crumbled into a pile on the floor. And of course, there was great disturbance in the court and the judge is banging his gavel for order in the courtroom. And uh, Mike Wallace asks Denur, what What happened? Did you become afraid when you saw Eichmann? Was it horrible memories of what had happened? What was it? Deneur said, it was none of those. Quote, I saw that Eichmann was an ordinary man, that he wasn't the monster we had made him out to be, and I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like him. End quote. That is what the world needs saving from. Jesus says the problem in our world isn't out there somewhere. We can find a million people to blame, but you know what it really is? It's our hearts. He says the problem with us is our hearts push out stuff that's terrible for us and terrible for the world, and we justify it. And so it leaves us unrighteous and we have this righteousness bank account that is not only empty but is filled with the debt of unrighteousness that we can never pay off. And the cost of our unrighteousness is death. And if humanity is to be saved, if we are to live, we need righteousness and we can't produce it on our own. So then, how do we get it? This is the central problem of the Scriptures. How do we get it? How do we get righteousness? And that leads me to my next point. What God does to provide salvation. Paul says in our text that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation, first for the Jew, then the Gentile. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Ah, there's that righteousness we need. And Paul says the gospel has it. How so? Well, the gospel essentially tells us that God looked over this world, saw all of our unrighteousness, and knew we were incapable of fixing it. So his plan was going to be to fix it himself. But here's something very important. Since he is just, he couldn't merely just brush away the unrighteousness of this world. He would have to take upon that debt himself. He couldn't just merely pretend it didn't exist. And so he decided that in order to pay the debt, he would do it himself. He would fulfill our righteousness in our place. Through Jesus Christ, God would die the death our, righteousness deser- our unrighteousness deserves on the cross. Through Jesus Christ, he would live the righteous life that we should have. And when his work was finished on the cross, he was able to declare that it is finished, that it is paid in full, that the debt has been worked out. And by doing so, He was able to rise from the dead three days later and declare victory over our unrighteousness penalty, which is death. And by doing so, He now stands ready to give the righteousness we so desperately need to anyone. He has earned it. That's the very summarized story of the Gospel. It's all about righteousness being one for us. So Romans 5 says, for while, "For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, or the unrighteous. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good for a good person, one would dare even to die. But verse eight says, "God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you and has gone to great lengths to show you. He says that He does all this in the person of His Son Jesus Christ because He doesn't want the world to face the penalty of their unrighteousness. He says He does all of the things that He went through, all of the suffering, all the trouble, all the difficulty, because, not because we're so lovable, but because He just is love because He loves you. God suffers and bleeds because He loves you in order to give you the righteousness you need. I heard a story from Ray Cortese a while back about a pastor in Chicago. He had been uh, he had a son who was really a great kid all the way through high school, and suddenly, about 19, 20 years old, he starts kind of distancing himself from the family, uh, stops showing up to family gatherings, birthdays, stuff like that. And, and eventually, um, he just... He just plunges headfirst into the drug culture. And he's he's gone. He's just he's disappeared. And for like a year and a half, no contact is made with the family at all. And then one night, the Pastor's phone rings late at night. It's a police officer from the from the jail in the town where his son lives saying, We have your son, he's been arrested. So the man gets up. Goes to the jail to go bail out his son. I'm sorry, we don't have that name here. There's nobody by that name in this jail. The pastor's a little trouble. What do you mean there's no one by that name? Well, I'm sorry, there's no one by that name. So he figures, okay, maybe it was a mistake. Maybe he went to the wrong place, so he goes to the next town over, and looks for his son. No, name's not there. So the pastor decides that he's going to go to the last known place that his son lives which is in the heart of downtown Chicago, and it's everything that you think of when you think of a crack house. Just an absolute mess. Doors uh, wide open, mattresses splayed out on the ground, people laying around everywhere. And the pastor walks through the house, and in the back corner, there he is. He sees his son laying down sleeping. And his heart just breaks. And he bends down. He kisses his son. And he leaves. Three months later, his son shows up back at the house. Unannounced, just shows up. And then a couple weeks later. And then a few days later. And pretty soon, the son is just around and fully integrated back into the family. And he's not doing drugs anymore. He's clean. And, and so the dad is, you know, he doesn't want to push. He doesn't want to get in the way. He doesn't want to ask too many questions, but he is genuinely curious and really mystified at what caused the change to his son. And so, Pulls him aside one day and says, what happened? Dad, you don't know? You don't know what happened? He says, that it was that night, Dad. You know that night that you got the call about me being arrested? That was a prank one of my friends was pulling on you and we were all laughing. We were all laughing at you. Thinking about you looking for me at the police station, but the one thing we never imagined, Dad, is that you would come to the place where we live. We never thought you 'd come into that dump, but you showed up, and so we, we saw you walking down the street, and we we uh, quickly pretended to be asleep because we didn 't want to get in, we didn 't want to be in trouble with you. And so we were pretending to be asleep as you walked in. And I was just certain that when you got to me, when you saw me, that you were going to kick me. And I knew I deserved it. I was ready for it. I was waiting for it. And then you kissed me. That's what changed me, Dad. You kissed me. The Bible says that is what Jesus Christ has done for you and I as well. We absolutely have earned the kick from our unrighteousness. But instead, He drops down to our level and delivers us the kiss of His righteousness. So to borrow Jack Miller's words, cheer up. You're a lot worse off than you think you are. But in Jesus, you're far more loved than you could ever have imagined. And that leads to our last point. What does God do to deliver that salvation? Well, in short, He sends a preacher. Now, it doesn't have to be an ordained preacher. It can be really anybody just sharing this Word. But He sends a preacher to preach this Word. He sends somebody to give you the sacraments where His body and blood are obtained. He sends gifts to you. Through this Word being given to you, being preached to you, there's something amazing that happens according to the Scriptures. The Spirit takes this Word and empowers the Word and brings it to the heart of the hearer so that faith is created merely by hearing this message. Faith comes by hearing, the Scriptures say, and hearing of the Word of Christ. And yet, it's mysterious. It's not not a predictable thing for how faith can be created. You know, I love the story of C.S. Lewis and his conversion. You know, uh, September 19th, 1931, C.S. Lewis is talking about Christianity with his buddies, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and uh, Hugo Dyson. How would you like to be a fly on the wall with them hanging out? They're just hanging out, you know, just talking Christianity, the author of Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Just, just chatting away. But at that time, C.S. Lewis is not a Christian. Three days later, he set out on his way to the zoo with his brother. This is what he writes, when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. When we reached the zoo, I did. There's a mystery to this whole thing. I can't predict how God will work, how the Spirit will work. The wind blows where it will, Jesus says in John 3. But I can tell you the means by which faith is created and it's through me doing this thing right now. That as you hear that Jesus is your righteousness, that He is your salvation, that your sins are forgiven because of Him, that he, you are declared perfect in His sight, that you are covered by Him, that something amazing happens. That maybe for the, for the hundredth time or the first time you find yourself saying, I want that. I want, that's Yes, I believe that or at least i want to believe that and if that's if that's you that's that's faith that's faith as paul writes in romans 117 for in the gospel the righteousness of god is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith nothing else pure and simple. Do you see it? The way you obtained everything that I just told you Jesus Christ did, the righteousness that you need is just by saying, yes, please. Okay. Turning to Him away from yourself and saying thank you. That's it. It's just accepting the gift. He has lived for you. He has died for you. He has rose again from you. And He declares that Through faith in Him, you're forgiven and righteous in His sight. Do you want that? Don't you need that? Let me conclude. So this is the message that I am preaching for our first service. And frankly, it will be the cornerstone of the message I preach going forward here. And here's what I think will happen when we keep this message right in the center of our church's life. Here's what I think will happen. I think that this church will be minister, will be motivated to minister effectively to the 125,000 people of Stytown and Alphabet City. I believe as we proclaim the gospel of the kingdom that God will impact not just New York City but the world. I am convinced that when this message is declared confidently and winsomely, we will grow numerically as a church. I am persuaded that when we make the good news of the salvation of unrighteous people, you and I, the reason for our story? That our story will really not be about a pastor and a few friends that moved here to try and start a church, this will be a story about God glorifying Himself by getting a whole bunch of new people into His kingdom and giving them righteousness so that they would be saved. That's what this is about. That's what we're here to do. We just want to see God work. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builder labors in vain, and I can't wait to watch Him do it in the days ahead. Will you pray with me? Father, thank You that ultimately this simple message, this message that we far too often complicate is the power of God for the salvation of the world. First for the Jew, then for the Greek, then for the Gentile, then for me and for us. Lord God, may this be our Word. May this be our battle cry. May this be the thing that we constantly rally around as a church here at Epiphany. And may You continue Your building. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.